This is John Holtzman, and welcome to the Pen Patrick Henry Podcast, where we dissect the problems with the world's global elites. And I'm about to sit down and have an espresso with you because I'm in between trips, uh, sitting here at the house, getting ready to go to Barcelona next week. Um, I will do the finale of our book serialization uh, on To Dare More Boldly. We'll finish on Monday. I won't be around for next Wednesday's usual Around the World in 20 Minutes podcast because I am going to be giving the keynote address for Informa. Um, for Risk Minds International in Barcelona, I'm giving the keynote on what, what's been going on while COVID's been going on, while we were sleeping, what else is there to look at. And then I'll be doing a war game, one of the favorite things I do for Quant Minds in Barcelona, uh, a war game on where does the green movement go after the problems they ran into in Glasgow. So hugely busy week with a keynote and a war game for Informa, Risk Minds and Quant Minds, my good friends there in Barcelona. But I will be back for next week's Patrick Henry podcast. Um, but what I wanted to do today was look at another of my travels that just ended. I just spent a grueling week in Washington. After two years of being enduring house arrest, I finally got to travel again, and in my usual milieu, the James Bond end of my life, which I adore, uh, I packed a week worth of meetings. Usually when you go to D.C., you have eight or nine meetings a day for five or six days. And in this case, so many people were desperate to see another human face, particularly one they don't normally see. I think that they were incredibly forthcoming with me. So today I'm going to look at what Republicans said was the trouble with Democrats and then next week on Friday, when I get back from Barcelona, I'm going to look at what Democrats said was the trouble with Republicans. And you can see, by the way, I'm framing this. I can tell you what the trouble is with the country, that one of the reasons I love the classics so much and classical history, particularly Greek history so much, is I always had the feeling that if you could figure Greek history out, the Greeks had the secret to how the world works and you could figure the world out. And the ultimate admonition of Greek philosophy, if it could be boiled down to a single sentence, is the Socratic soundbite, never bettered really, Socrates saying, know thyself. And indeed, it's printed in the caves where the Pythia, the first political risk analysts, gave their prophecies as priestesses of the god Apollo, the god of prophecy. If you go to Delphi today and you look down in the subterranean chamber where she actually made her prophecies, Know thyself in ancient Greek is written right on the door. This was this fundamental to how the Greeks looked at the world. And it seems to me that you can do little better. And in D.C., boy, are they failing the classical Greek test. All these brains and all this ability, and they spend it on looking at their enemies, but never, ever at themselves. And this is the ultimate problem. Democrats gave me a forensic view of what was wrong with Republicans. Republicans gave me a quote-by-quote -quote view of what was wrong with the Democrats that I'm going to share with you in a minute. But this high-octane brain power was never turned on themselves. So again, I think reading some Aeschylus wouldn't hurt any of these guys. Uh, but I want to tell you what I learned, because these trips are a fascinating part of my job, the learning that you're constantly learning if you do what I do, about the world. And you listen to people long enough, patterns begin to form. And after one of these weeks of blitzing in Washington, seeing everyone, talking to everyone, here's what I learned. And we're going to divide this into two. Today, the trouble with the Democrats. Next Friday, the trouble with the Republicans. 
So what have I learned about the Democrats? Well, part of their political troubles are just natural and normal swings of American political life. Uh, the Democrats are running against history. In 36 of 39 midterm elections, 36 of 39 since the Civil War, the party that just gained the presidency loses House seats. This is what my grandmother would call buyer's remorse. Having bought the Democratic car, you realize it wasn't as perfect as the advertisements made it out to be. Governing is a messy, frustrating business in any republic, as anybody who's gotten through the Federalist Papers of Hamilton and Madison, the single best how-to book and how to run a democratic society ever written, still incredibly well-written, uh, wise, funny, passionate. One of the best books I can recommend you read over the holidays is the Federalist Papers, the Starter's Manual to How to Run Our Constitution. And Hamilton and Madison said that it was a harmonious exercise in perpetual frustration. And the Democrats are running into this. And this is why reality is never as good as advertisement, which is why 36 of the 39 times since the Civil War this has happened, the party newly in power with the presidency loses House seats. So the Democrats were never going to buck that reality anyway. When you add in another fact of the American system, just a fact of life, redistricting has occurred after the 10-year census process. Redistricting is controlled by state legislators, by state governorships, and the overwhelming majority of legislator, legislators and governors in the American system at the state level, about two-thirds of them, are run by Republicans. And this gives them, as they gerrymander districts, carve salamanders into shapes, this gives them nationally about a 10 to 15 seat edge going into the House elections. So if all history is already against the Democrats and then you add on an extra 10 to 15 seats when they only have a majority of four, it was always going to be heavy sledding indeed for the Democrats to retain control of the House. But more is going on than just this as my Republican colleagues made it plain to me. The Virginia governor's election, and Virginia is now a blue state. It used to be a purple state, a real a true toss-up state, but now with so many government workers tending to be Democrats moving into Northern Virginia, the state is certainly true blue. In fact, Biden won Virginia just a year ago by 13 points, so a comfortable victory for Biden. And yet just this past few months, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, managed to overturn this 13-point Democratic lead and narrowly by about two points win the governorship over Terry McAuliffe, for, cl, former Clinton hack, hack, former governor of Virginia, and fairly lackluster candidate, but not a terrible candidate. And Youngkin overturns these 13 points to win by two. So in one year, you have a 15-point swing, which is greater than what we're talking about from the Civil War historical advantage or even the gerrymandering census redistricting advantage. And it looks like a tsunami is brewing for the Republicans at the House level. And indeed, the Senate is even in play. Um, in 2022, 34 Senate seats are up. Usually a third of the Senate seats are up in any one election, and they stagger them by thirds. Of these 34 seats, the Republicans have to defend this time 20 seats. So the math greatly favors the Democrats. And yet the Senate is still in play, and the House looks well and truly gone for the Republicans, and the Virginia vote seems to be a canary in the coal mine with a 15-point swing. So what in the world is going on? Why are the Democrats doing so badly, far worse than they should, just from the facts of life of the American political system? 
Well, my Republican operatives pointed out to me three basic problems the Democrats have. One, they're not getting credit for the legislation they're passing, which is an amazing thing. They, they've passed a COVID stimulus bill at over a trillion dollars. They've passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is 500 to 700 billion in new money and over a trillion in total with real bipartisan support, at least in the Senate. Um, and the Democratic Progressive Wish List Bill, the last part of their plan, $1.75 trillion, has somehow gotten through the four-seat majority in the House with Speaker Pelosi, never one for policy ideas, but tremendously good at herding cats. Ironically, Pelosi reminds me of nobody so much as Mitch McConnell, her Republican counterpart in the Senate. Not big thinkers about ideas, but tremendous at herding fractious coalitions which nobody would wish on their enemy and getting things done. Pelosi managed to get the bill through the House. It's languishing in the Senate. Uh, look at the stern gaze of Senators Manchin and Cinema uh, of West Virginia and Arizona, respectfully, looking at what's going on and seeing if they will agree to it. But she got it through the House. They've passed the COVID emergency bill, the first of the big three. They've passed uh, the infrastructure bill in a bipartisan manner, rather incredibly. That's $1.1 trillion for desperately needed improvements in American infrastructure. Anybody who's driven, been on a road, dealt with rural broadband, seen a mediocre American airport, uh, seen bridges falling down, or dealt with the potholes that happen every spring. Guess what? This will be taken care of. So on the surface, Biden can actually tout legislative achievements. He's done what he said he would do. And yet he's getting absolutely no credit for this at all. And his approval rating has fallen since February, according to Gallup, where it was at about somewhere around 57 percent to just above the danger level of 40 percent at 42 percent at the end of November in Gallup polling. A 15 point drop out of the sky in Gallup polling for Biden's overall approval rating, which is the temperature of the party traditionally. So why are the Democrats falling out of the sky? And even worse for the Democrats among independents, the people who actually decide the course of elections in this highly polarized society, the narrow number of independents become the dominant factor. Biden has lost 16 points between this February and the end of November. 16 points. They've deserted him in droves. The honeymoon is well and truly over. And part of this is just the sausage-making process of legislation. As Bismarck said about legislation, it's a lot like sausage. You may like the taste of it, but boy, you don't want to see how it's made. Legislation is like that. You may like the outcome, but boy, you don't want to see how it's made. And we've discovered a fact that you and I have talked about a lot in these podcasts, which is that the Democratic Party is as divided as the Republican Party, perhaps even more so. You don't read this in the standard commentariat, which is democratically leading, if not an arm of the Democratic Party, or in the foreign commentariat, which is Wilsonian and Democratic leading, if not an arm of the Democratic Party. Again, like people in D.C., the media are good at looking at the problems of Republicans, less good at looking at the problems of Democrats, because literally to a man and a woman, they are all Democrats. It's just that simple. And looking in the mirror is a painful process. It results in wisdom, as the ancient Greeks said, but it's not a thing most people do well or easily. And the media simply don't see that the Democratic Party is utterly divided between its progressive wing, which wants to be social democratic in a European sense, which is not really part of the American tradition, 
and old moderate Truman Kennedy Democrats. And this division is hard to erase when you only have a four-seat majority in the House and a 50-50 split in the Senate. You need everybody. You need sign-off from everybody. And these divisions that are already there suddenly come to the surface. Oddly enough, I think the person who most understands this is not somebody I normally agree with about, well, anything, and that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. AOC, musing aloud the other day, gets this right. She says, look, if we lived in Europe, Joe Manchin and I and the moderate Democrats and I, with my progressive squad, wouldn't be in the same party. We'd be competing against each other and then fight things out in a coalition government. Absolutely right. In Europe, parties tend to be ideological. The horse trading occurs in coalitions afterwards. In America, the parties are big tent with people fighting within the tent and the two tents containing people that normally would have little or nothing to do with one another. And AOC is absolutely on the money. And so as a result of getting these bills passed, which has taken adroit legislative leadership from Joe Biden, old Senate pro that he is, and Speaker Pelosi, the problem is that for the last six months, we've watched the Democrats negotiate with each other. And if there's anything designed to drive the American public into a frenzy, it's a party negotiating with itself, not getting its act together. Although this is legislatively necessary, and although AOC is right to say, this coalition is so utterly disparate, we're going to have to negotiate about everything, all that is true. And yet the optics of this are horrendous. And in a time of a world historical emergency, COVID, the world historical emergency, where serious times demand serious people, instead we've seen the Democrats sniping at each other, picking on each other, negotiating in the media, looking small, navel-gazing, looking internally at each other, looking focused and obsessed with each other, and not on the plight of the American people. And this optical problem, because of these ideological divisions which are real, are killing the Democrats with the independent voters they need to win elections and explains the 16-point fall off the cliff that has occurred this year. The second major problem they have is that Democrats, very ideological, particularly the progressive wing, seem to care about social issues at a time when the monster of inflation has been loosed from his cage. After all this time, two generations of peace given to us by Paul Volcker, the intrepid and highly successful Fed chair, way more successful and useful than Alan Greenspan, the only laterally discredited Fed chair who, through his lack of curiosity about regulation, gave us the 2008-2009 financial crisis. On the other hand, Volcker, with Reagan's steadfast political support, slay the dragon that was inflation for fully 40 years. But boy, the beast is loose now. And Joe Biden, in typical Democratic fashion, worrying far more, as Democrats traditionally do, about unemployment and far too little about inflation, has taken their eye off the ball and put gasoline on a roaring fire. The $1.1 trillion COVID emergency bill, coupled with the $1.1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill, coupled with the $1.75 trillion Build Back Better bill, when you add all this in, you've got people spending money like a drunken sailor. To give the Democrats some credit, part of the reason that they did this was that they thought that COVID dislocations would be far worse than they were, and they erred on the side of spending money in their traditional Keynesian manner. Let's overprime the pump, and that way we won't be blamed for ignoring the plight of our people. 
Well, this is this is good tactical strategy politically, but it makes for terrible policy. And that's what we're seeing. Larry Summers, the great Clinton Treasury Secretary, has gotten this right at the expense of the ignoramus Paul Krugman, who, again, is the Yasser Arafat of macroeconomics, wrong about literally everything. Why anyone gives this guy a column is a sign of the decline of the New York Times and the establishment media. If you're wrong in a republic, you shouldn't be given more and more airtime, but rather less in any meritocratic Republican system. But sadly, we seem to live less and less in a meritocratic Republican system. So Krugman's wrong. On the other hand, Summers gets it exactly right, saying, look, the economy is only one or two percentage points below capacity after COVID, and yet our spending coming from Biden is 15 to 16 percent of GDP. So think of this. We're spending an extra in terms of COVID stimulus, 15 to 16 percent of GDP, a gargantuan sum of money that no one has any intention of paying back, a gargantuan sum of money for an economy that is almost running at capacity. And as he says simply, there are other factors involved, but this and this alone it explains raging inflation. 15% increase in, in capacity of spending with an economy running at about what it did before COVID. So you're going to get massive inflation. And it's, indeed, that's what we have. Inflation is currently 6.2% and has been above 5% for the last five months. Worse, Biden has been utterly tone deaf about this, saying, oh, this will pass. Everyone tells me this is nothing. So you have to pay a little bit more for Chinese goods. So what? He couldn't be more tone deaf about this. And at the last minute, they're scrambling because they own this issue. So to American ears, to independent voters ears, while the Democrats worry about the Black Lives Matter critical race theory soap opera, which is historically inaccurate, domestically dangerous for a country to divide people up into race and ethnicity. Look, I've been to the Balkans. I've been to Beirut. That is not a model we want to follow. The grand exception of America is we get beyond these things, look at things clearly, and don't divide people up at the age of seven or eight into oppressors and victims. But this seems even crazier to independent ears when coupled with inflation. And inflation acts, in essence, as a tax on everyone's salary particularly blue-collar workers, the working poor, the lower middle class. This is a tax and a misery on everyone's salary. And whereas unemployment is a tragedy if your family finds yourself unemployed, it's a subset of the whole country. Whereas inflation impacts everybody, literally everyone, and the Democrats absolutely own this. It is their spending they're pushing to the wind that is causing this. And this is the millstone around their neck that is going to sink them in the 2022 election. My prediction, they lose the House by a huge majority, and they also probably somehow find a way to lose the Senate because of this. And this leads me to my last point as to what's gone wrong for Biden. Joe Biden can't figure out correctly why he was elected. Every Democrat, by their very nature, are utopian. They are pushing to do more. They are impatient with history, and they misread their mandates. Joe Biden was elected because he was moderate, boring, normal, seemed decent. And after the carnival ride that were the Trump years, a lot of independent voters said, enough, I want to go back to having the government worry only about governing, doing less but doing it better and leave the soap opera at the door. This is precisely why Biden beat 
the two leftist candidates who ran against him, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. The basic reason he won the primary contests after his terrible start was he was seen as that moderate voice who would pull independent voters in, get rid of Trump, and go back to America getting on with the business of living. But instead, he utterly misread his mandate, and with only a majority of four in the House and zero in the Senate, he decided to enact the biggest government spending programs since the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson, who had mammoth majorities after the 1964 elections. He had mammoth majorities with the sympathy from the Kennedy assassination and Johnson's very adroit campaigning. And he used those majorities to enact major legislation, much as FDR used his mammoth majorities during the height of the Depression to enact the New Deal. Biden lacks these majorities, and yet he's going full throttle at a far leftist agenda. He's not what he seemed to independent voters who hoped he'd be moderate, do very little, do it well, and restore decency. By fundamentally misreading his mandate, Biden has only himself to blame for the vast trouble of the Democrats, who are likely to lose the House by a huge majority and may even find a way to somehow lose the Senate. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed us dissecting what was wrong with the Democrats. As you can see, I learned a ton from my trip to Washington and can't wait to, to share it with you in an unfiltered manner, which is the joy of Substack. For those of you who haven't uh, subscribed now, please do. So many of you have and we're gratified. And again, it's just for things like my trip reports where we can report back to you in an unfiltered manner on what went on. As I used to do to congressional delegations, I now do it for you guys. And I love that. And I love the community that we're growing. For those of you who have subscribed, and I'm about to have that espresso in front of my nose enticingly. I live in Italy after all. I want you to now give. Substack is the honor system for $70 a year or $7 a month. Half of a Starbucks a month. If you think we add value in your life worth half of a Starbucks a month for $70 a month, $70 a year, $7 a month, we will continue on our merry road. And so many of you have that we will. But please do give because I love doing this with you. Now on to the espresso and on to Barcelona. You guys have a great weekend and we will finish the book serialization of To Dare More Boldly next Monday and then we'll start on another book. I look forward to talking to you then. Bye.